0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Quarantine Stuff You Should Know. I am your host, A.J. Hanenberg. I'm a teacher at a classical school in Austin, Texas, named Veritas Academy. And I am in quarantine, as I'm sure you are in quarantine. Uh, this this series is going to last as long as quarantine lasts, or at least 100 days until I run out of stories, whichever comes first. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to do. This is a way to occupy my time and hopefully help you to occupy yours in a... You know, beneficial way. We'll be doing a book called *The Decameron* together, and that is written by a fella named Giovanni Boccaccio. And Giovanni Boccaccio was, as you probably can have guessed, an Italian. He was an illegitimate son born in thirteen thirteen, but his father, you know, legitimized him pretty quick, and they lived together outside of Florence. Uh, As he was young, he studied Dante, who had a, a huge influence on his future life. Uh, he would reference Dante often. Um, we will get to the end of his life when he was actually giving a series of lectures on Dante, but I I get ahead of myself. Um, he, he moved with his dad in 1326. So he'd have been about 13 years old to Naples and he worked for six years at his dad's bank in Naples. And these were unproductive years for him. He didn't do much writing, although he learned banking. I'm sure he went to studium or the Italian university and studied Canon law. He did not get a degree uh, he then became part of Robert the Wise's kingdom. He was, he was in the kingdom of Naples, which stretched a good chunk of Italy. <clears throat> and so he got kind of got a taste for medieval courtly life. And in Robert the Wise's court, they spoke French, which is kind of weird for Italy, but that was the case. He returned to Florence in 1340, 1341, because uh, the bank kind of went down and his dad was bankrupt. He honestly wanted to stay at Naples, but he accompanied his dad all the way back to Florence And during his life, he would care for his father, his father's, you know, anybody left of his father's kids because his dad was a, he was a widower and for his own five illegitimate kids, although none of them lived to adulthood. Uh, Later, he moved to Ravenna from Florence because of all the crazy political chaos that happened in Florence. If, if any of you have heard our Dante podcasts, you know that Florence was just a, hornet's nest of crazy political coups one side would kick out the other side and everybody would get exiled and then they would all come back and then exile the other group and there were murders and there were intrigues and there were wars and just all kinds of nonsense and so he moved to ravenna partially to get away from that in 1348 so two years after he moved italy was struck by the worst plague in european history the black death you probably know about it there's no hard evidence that he was in the city when the plague broke out. In fact, uh, he may have been in the town of Forley in 1347, 1348, so he, he may not have been in the city at all. Uh, his story, the Decameron, is set in Florence in the time of the Black Plague. Uh, many of his, the descriptions he gets of the disease uh, partially come from the 8th century Historia Longobardorum by Paul Diaconus. It's also likely he got some of the description of the plague from his dad, who was in charge of sort of funding and organizing a relief in the city during the time of the plague. So he had he had details about what was going on. He may not have seen it firsthand, but again, I mean, there's, there's no way to say he didn't visit. He probably knew what was going on, and it absolutely ravaged Florence. It was bad. I don't know if you guys know too much about what happened with the Black Plague, but you'd get these horrible goiters, and then death would usually follow three days afterwards. He he ri- he writes about the conditions in the city so i don't want to get too far into it now but it's it was terrible and estimates put the death toll anywhere between 30 and 60% of the european population and i think in florence it took 60 or something like that it was it was bad it was bad news so his book is happily set during the time of the black plague which i thought was appropriate for what's going on for us right now and you'll see that this story is even more appropriate for what's going on for us in quarantine as we move along, but we'll get there. Okay. So his um, he probably wrote the Decameron in the years between 1349 and 1351 or 52. He would have been at this point 35 years old, like they think Dante was when he wrote his great epic. Uh, he was 35, he says, midway in our life, which probably would have been about 35 that's a guess for dante for him we know he was actually probably 35 he met a really important guy named petrarch in 1351 and that marked kind of a shift in his writing right prior he had been sort of a romantic medieval poet writing in the vernacular in italian after he wrote petrarch he sort of committed himself to writing scholarly works in latin and didn't write in the vernacular much anymore he even kind of saw his previous works as vulgar and the decameron was one of those but we know that he didn't necessarily totally ditch the Decameron as something he had, you know, moved beyond because he, he did his own translation in Latin far later in his life, the, the whole book. So we know he was still attached to it at least a little bit. He was active as a diplomat in the 1340s. He decided to take holy orders by 1360, and he died giving lectures in Florence on Dante on December 21st of 1375. He would have been about 62 years old. All right, so that's that's the guy. That's Giovanni. Giovanni was a banker. He lived in Florence. He sired illegitimate children. He himself was illegitimate. He experienced about as Italian a life as you could experience. And he had experience in both the merchant class and in the courtly class. And so he kind of had a pretty good grasp on Italian culture. As far as the Decameron goes, it begins with a sort of preface where he talks about why he wrote the book and he dedicated it I kid you not, to ladies in love. And the reason he dedicates it to ladies in love is because he himself has been in love, and he he knows that that's kind of rough. So here, here's a little quote. He says, "'Most gracious ladies, whenever I contemplate how compassionate you all are by nature, I recognize that, in your judgment, the present work will seem both somber and painful.' For its opening contains the sad record of the recent deadly plague, which inspired so much horror and pity in all who actually saw it or otherwise came to know of it. And he dedicates it to the ladies because dudes who are in love have ways to, you know, kind of get through it. We can go to work. We can talk with friends. We can go watch the bullfights. We can kind of distract ourselves. In Italian culture of the time, ladies largely stayed home. And so if they were in love, they just kind of had to sit and stew in it and that's rough. It just ends up burning with greater force. And so he says, I've been in love and that was really hard for me and I had some friends that helped me through it. So I should really give help where I can, but my friends don't need it. So I should give it to somebody else who is also in love and can't find a way to distract themselves. So let me write this story for you. And then after he sort of does this little preamble, he talks about the conditions of the plague in Europe. And I got another little quote here. Whether it descended on us mortals through the influence of the heavenly bodies, that would be the planets, or was sent down by God in his righteous anger to chastise us because of our wickedness, it had begun some years before in the East, where it deprived countless beings of their lives before it headed to the West, spreading ever, ever greater misery as it moved relentlessly from place to place. Against it, all human wisdom and foresight were useless." Vast quantities of refuse were removed from the city by officials charged with it this function. The sick were not allowed inside the walls and numerous instructions were disseminated for the preservation of health, but all to no avail. Nor were the humble supplications made by God, made to God to the, by the pious, not just once but many times, than whether, whether in organized processions or in other ways any more effective. For practically from the start of spring in the year we mentioned above, the plague began producing its sad effects in a terrifying and extraordinary manner. And so the, the plague just kind of goes nuts. And he he talks about the different reactions that people have to this plague. And I, I think it's especially interesting because it it's kind of the way that some people have been acting now to the plague we find ourselves in currently. So some thought that living, m- like, temperately and abstaining from foods right being abstemious would help them uh to resist the plague like get get a little physical hardiness going so they formed companies and they would go and live in isolation and they would shut themselves up and with the means for good living um and and try to have no news of the outside if they could possibly uh possibly help it um basically just well supply themselves stay out of harm's way and abstain from going nuts Some, and I think some of that is true of us, right? We've we've sort of locked ourselves up. I mean, most of us are locked up now, but early in the plague, some people were shutting their doors way before anybody else. The opposite side, some people thought the surest medicine was to drink heavily, enjoy life's pleasures, and go about singing and having fun and turning everything into jokes and satisfying their appetites. They would drink in groups. They would go to private homes and drink. They would go to abandoned homes and drink. At this point, many of the buildings in Florence had been completely abandoned by their people. If the folks were healthy, they may have left. If they weren't healthy, well, they were probably dead. And at this point, many of the houses were just sort of common property. Anything left in the houses was available to anyone. So these guys that wanted to get totally tanked would just wander into a house, try to find some booze, and get smashed on their floor. That was one thing that people did. So you have those two sides of things. You have the people who shut themselves up and try not to expose themselves, which probably was actually one of the wisest courses. And then the guys who think, well, if I'm going to go, I might as well go out having fun. And this particular group of people reminds me of the folks who are still going to Miami to have spring break and all end up with COVID-19. That's terrible, but it's I, I we see it still today, which I think is interesting. Um, it says respect for the laws had declined. People pretty much behaved how they liked there was another group that kind of took the middle way. They didn't restrict their diet, but they also didn't indulge. They st- sort of tried to satisfy their appetites. They held flowers to their no- nose to prevent the nasty air from coming in. I don't know if many of you know this. If you've ever seen those plague doctor masks, it looks like a big, creepy crow bird style thing, gas mask. That whole nose was filled with potpourri and flowers and good sense because the bubonic plague smelled so terrible that they thought that the smell was one of the ways that the putrid air would get to you. And so if they could sniff the air through that big beak thing, through all the potpourri, it might kind of clean things out a little bit. Uh, So people were actually just walking around with bouquets of flowers jammed in their face and hoping that 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 might solve the problem. A good chunk of people thought that fleeing was the best idea. So they would abandon the city. They had abandoned their homes. They would abandon their relatives. Uh, But many of them still could not flee to a place where the plague had not reached a People were spreading it all over the place and some of the worst offenders were the plague doctors themselves, right? All the doctors walking around, I mean, many of the doctors walking around had the plague and so they actually spread it to every single patient they would go see and worse, they would spread it from city to city as they traveled trying to help the sick. Um, Not all of the people that took these different tactics died, but not all survived either, right? There didn't seem to be any real surefire way to avoid this thing. Um, Even worse... No one really cared for their neighbors anymore. Visits became infrequent. Often you would find out that your neighbor was dead just because of the smell. Some refused even to tend for their own children. Um, The servants of, of many of the wealthy folks had either bailed or died. And so many of the really wealthy people, if they were sick, had to depend on maybe a single servant for their care. And usually these servants to stay in the service of a sick person would charge just insane salaries for the services they rendered. And the person was so sick that their duties were pretty minimal anyway. They would just mostly hand stuff to the sick person, um, which, which is rough. And the people who would do that were mostly kind of dimwitted. And so you had these just dimwitted servants making gobs of money off of the few rich people that were sick and had to pay for their services. Um, and servants were still so scarce that even the wealthy women sometimes had to hire male servants, which meant exposure, which meant all kinds of things that were really looked down upon in Italian, Italian culture at the time. And usually, I mean, even, even their uh, their normal rituals were sacrificed. At a funeral in Italy at the time, what would happen is the male and female neighbors would come over, the ladies would go in the house and grieve over the body with the the widow, and then the men would kind of congregate outside. And when the grieving was done, they would grab the body, they would hoist it on their shoulders, probably in a coffin, and they would walk it to the church graveyard where they would bury it and have their service. Even this was abandoned. At this point, no one's really even going to Every, anyone else's funeral there's just so many dead that it doesn't make sense all of the mourning and crying has been abandoned in favor of laughter and trying to keep yourself happy and hearty against the disease um worse the body was so overrun with corpses that there couldn't be a procession for every single one what usually happened is that the bodies were simply loaded onto carts and then hauled through the streets to their graves and if you've ever seen the the search for the holy grail monty python you know that part where he's like bring out your dead I mean, that, that's kind of what happened. It said sometimes they even had to stack several bodies on the same planks of wood and sort of haul them through the city. And the funerals were not much better. The priest, instead of leading a single procession for a single person, would try to do one funeral and then people would sort of fall in behind with all of the extra bodies that they had collected on these beers. And so what originated as one funeral would end up being a funeral for eight or ten or whatever. And there wasn't enough consecrated ground for burial. They would get to the church and they had to dig these huge trenches and then they would lay the bodies in and then cover them up with dirt and then lay more bodies in. And that just went on until it was full and then they would cover it up. It just, all of Italian life was completely falling apart. It was horrible. Yep, our economy is in the shambles, uh, but I still don't think we have hit the crazy, insane situation that italy was in at the time Uh, even on the farms right people would die out on the farms and so there would just be animals wandering around and those who still were alive thought that their end was coming and so they saw no use in trying to harvest or plant or care for animals they just sort of went and did what they wanted to because they were certain it was all over so that was what was going on a hundred thousand people or more died in florence right that's that's just a crazy number at least according to giovanni Okay, so that's that's the background, and that's what Giovanni spends the first part of the book talking about. And then he gets to the actual shell story. And the actual shell story happens when seven ladies gather together in the church of Santa Maria Novella. They're all between 18 and 28, so all sort of in the prime of their life. And he's going to protect their names because it, it's... He, he gives fake names for him. Some of people think that they represented people that he actually knew, but no one's been successful in identifying any of these. Some of them are references to other literature, but I'll give you their seven names and what they mean in Italian. So Pampanea, the one who kind of speaks and is sort of the queen of the time, at least in the beginning, her name means the blooming one. There's Fiametta, the little flame. Philomena, the beloved or lover of song. Amelia, the alluring one. Loretta, which is kind of like Laura, which alludes to Petrarch's beloved. You know how Dante had his beloved, he had Beatrice. Um this would have been Petrarch's kind of There's Neophile, which means newly beloved and elissa which is another name for Dido from the Aeneid. So some are references, some are just Italian. Most all of it kind of goes around love, which makes sense. He's writing this to girls who are in love. And so these seven ladies sort of gather in the church. And then Pampinea sits there and she's like, "Look, We've been talking here and it seems clear that we all are in fear for our lives. We sit here as if our sole purpose was to count all of the bodies in the church or to hear that the friars are doing their job when they're supposed to do their job or show everyone that we're miserable by the quality of our clothing. If we go outside, all we see is dead and sick. If we go home, I don't have many servants left. I have like one maid and all I can see are the ghosts of the dead around me. Like my house feels haunted and if we walk around outside, we have the Sextons, who are like the gravediggers charging money for burying all the corpses, and they're, you know, singing terrible songs, and people that were exiled are back and just doing whatever they want to. The whole place is lawless. In short, like, why are, why are we here? What are we waiting for? What's the point of hanging out in this church feeling sad when we all are in fear for our lives? So here's my plan, ladies, Pampanea says. The best thing would be to leave the city and stay in a country estate have as much fun as possible without overstepping the bounds of reason. Um and we aren't really abandoning anybody. Our families sort of abandoned us already. Like we're left here on our own. All right, so she kind of gives this, "Hey, let's get out of here. What are we what are we still doing around doing this for?" And one of the other wom- women replies, and this is, you know, buckle up for sexism. So, she says, "Remember, we are all women." And every one of us is sufficiently adult to recognize how women, when left to themselves in a group, can be quite irrational, and how, without a man, a man to look after them, they can be terribly disorganized. Since we are fickle, quarrelsome, suspicious, weak, and fearful, I am really worried that if we take no guide along with us other than ourselves, this company will fall apart much more quickly, and with much less to credit to our, much less to credit to ourselves than would otherwise be the case. We would be well advised to deal with this problem. Before I start, and this is like, oh man, you are totally right. We need a man, we need some men to do this. And they're like, oh, I don't really know what to do. And then three dudes walk through the door. None of them are younger than 25, but they're all kind of in their, you know, in their youthful prime. So these three guys are Panphilo, which means he who is made entirely of love or he who loves all. Philostrato, who means he is cast down. W- w- sorry, which means he who is cast down by love or overcome by love. And Dionio, which means lustful. It's derived from Dione, the mother of Venus. So these three guys walk in and they're like, dang, well, seems like fate has provided for us. let us. Let's get the job done. And so they sort of pitch it to the boys and the boys say, great sounds like a plan especially because the three girls that they liked were sort of in this group of seven ladies and so that sounds like a fun little getaway everyone will be accountable no one can look at anybody sideways because uh you know there's there's also some sisters of these guys in the group so there's some family relations in there too so everything is on the up and up but hey at least we get to go hang out with the girls we like so sounds like a great plan so they off they go they go to this palace that's up on sort of a, a mountain with a large, lovely courtyard, a bunch of gardens, and they take a bunch of wine and some sweets and some good food, and they take, you know, like one, one or two servants apiece, and they all go up to this place on a mountain to hang out and hopefully avoid the plague. That's their plan. So when they get there, Pampanea says, all right, look, here's what we should do. We should elect a leader for the day right? Someone to sort of direct things and be in charge. Otherwise, it's just going to be chaos all the time and we'll end up fighting and it won't be good. So we'll have a leader for the day, but it won't be, it won't stay one person because we don't want everyone to envy the person in charge. It'll rotate. And at Vespers every evening, you will choose your successor. The first one we will elect. And everyone's like, oh, that's a great idea. We choose you. So Pampanea gets chosen and they put a laurel wreath on her head and then she sort of organizes all the, all the maids and the butlers and says, here's what you guys are supposed to do. Get the kitchen ready, clean this place up, get the rooms all set. And that happens. And then they sort of go off and gallivant during the morning and then come back for a little nap and have a meal. And then when it gets hot, they all sort of gather under this tree and she's like, man, you know what? We could go walking around, but it's sneaking hot outside. We've, we've just had food. So we're all sated. Probably shouldn't sleep anymore. And we've got all these games set up, but I don't know about you guys, but the thing I've noticed about games is that somebody always loses, and they end up kind of miffed, and then the people watching don't have much fun, and the person winning also isn't having that much fun. So here's what I propose. I think what we should do is tell a story. And after each one of us tells a story, about 10 stories per day, well, the hot part of the day will be over, and we can go off and do whatever we want to in the evening and be done. That's what I think. I think we should all tell stories. And on the first day, we should all tell a story about whatever topic we want, right? Sounds like a great plan. And everyone says, yes, that is great. And so she says, okay, Panfilo, you're the first. And that's what, that's what ends the introduction, right? These seven ladies, these three guys in a palace avoiding the plague, telling stories to pass their time away. And that felt like something we should do too. So I will try to come every day with a story for you from the Decameron. Um, There are some cool Dante parallels here. There are a hundred stories. There were a hundred cantos in Dante. Um, There seems to be, there's like seven women, which is a holy number. There's a trinity of guys, three. It's also a comedy. It ends happily, but it's a little bit different because it's more of a human comedy, right? It focuses on man rather than the elevation of man to the divine. I can talk a little bit more about the structure of the Decameron as I go, but I thought I'd just give you guys a little bit of setup, introduce you to Giovanni, introduce you to Pampanea and the crew, and what we'll be doing for the next hundred days here on Quarantine Stuff You Should Know. All right, that's my episode for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I will catch you on the Flippy Floppy.